Thank you very much. My name is Art, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm not used to wearing these suits on my day off. <laughs> there may be someone out here, possibly some younger person, who's not sure whether they're alcoholic or not. So I'd like to start by telling this story that I heard in AA of this young lady who went to a doctor because she was having morning pains, if you know what I mean. And after the examination, the doctor looked at her and says, young lady, you're pregnant. She says, how can I be pregnant? I've never had sex. He says, I don't care what you've had. You're pregnant. So she starts giving him a lot of talk. He walks over to a window and starts looking out the window. She says, I'm paying for this visit. Why are you looking out the window? He says, well, the last time this happened, three wise men appeared. Throughout my talk, I have to mention my business because uh, some people say, and I've heard a lot of them because I'm a long-timer, they'll say, well, my story doesn't differ from many others. Mine does. Simple reason that I'm a musician. It's all my life, and I'm still in it. The first time I got drunk, I was a teenager. And 18 gangsters walked into a club where I was gainfully employed, and one of the young men in that gang with. He went one way, I went the other. He thought it would be very fun to put 18 drinks on the piano, which they did, and there was no question about him. I got deathly sick, threw up in a cab, and swore I'd never drink again. That lasted six months, <laughs> if, if I'm calling right. <laughs> I grew up in my business and in life, mostly in Chicago. Actually, back to New York. It's been the tale of two cities for me, pretty much. Park Forest is a suburb that's about 32 miles from Chicago. To talk about my drinking, first place, I worked every place in Chicago from the bucket of blood to the Chaparie. That's from the bottom to the top. And I remember certain scenes that will really clearly show what a successful drinker I was. I remember one scene, sitting on an ash can, I'd gotten through work, four, it was six o'clock in the morning, and a friend of mine got off a streetcar, public conveyance, and saved me, took me back on the, the next streetcar and got me home, and the next day he says to me, what were you doing sitting on the ash can, going like this? There was 18 cabs, and that was the best I could do to call a cab. One of the scenes that gained me a lot of success in this business, got me on the blacklist, was I was working for a big-time leader, and the engagement was 40 miles out somewhere. Somewhere along the line, I needed a lift. And you young people who think you've discovered pot, forget it. <laughs> we were doing that years ago. And I got out of the car with one of the other boys, and we opened the back seat, the trunk, telling the leader we forgot something, we want to make sure it was there. In order to get to our lift, we took the bass drum out and left it there. 
And there was no way in the world I could explain that. <laughs> As I say, I drank up and down in my early years. Um, smoked and drank, smoked and drank. Anything that would get me high. Someone told me early in my life that if you could get drunk and be somebody, <laughs> you was somebody. And I've continued to practice that with some success. Um, got pretty well known. Finally decided the place for me to go was New York City because it, Chicago had gotten to be a sort of a desert oasis as far as my music was concerned. So I went to New York. And I continued my same ways. I'd like to tell you a few experiences. I'm not going to dwell too long on a drunkologue. Um... My first write-up, they had a magazine at that time in New York called Q. And the lettering on how it works is about twice as large as the lettering in Q. But if you got a notice in Q, you had arrived to some extent. Well, this night someone told me I'd gotten notice. So I went out quickly and bought a magazine, came back and finished work. I was on 52nd Street. And after work, I went into a restaurant, and I'm stoned on anything I could find. And I'm sitting there looking at my write-up. I was there 45 minutes when suddenly the place is buzzing with police. It seemed that there was one customer besides me sitting down at the end of the counter. When he got through eating, he held up the joint. <laughs> and I'm so stoned with my write-up, I don't know a thing. <laughs> I was a very successful, knocked-out person. I spent time on it. I worked at it. I mean, it was more than a pleasure. It was an affinity, something that had to be done and done successfully. During that time, I, I had picked up a family. It was my second wife. And we had a lot of children, five uh, three at that time, eventually five, two, two since I got into AA. And uh, I didn't notice anything wrong at home because my idea of business in New York is most business is conducted in a bar. So you better, I spend a lot of times in bars conducting my business. And the other thing that I learned that is quite different from AA is get to know somebody, he can do you some good. I didn't learn different until I came in this room, that I should get to know somebody because maybe I could do them some good. It was completely turned around. So I got to know quite a few people there. In fact, that was eventually where I got sober. Um, just a few things more. I set up a... We hear about Newport and Cool and all that. Well, I, I was very fortunate to have set up the first concert there with some young fellow who was a fan of mine. Always seemed to be able to pick up fans. And uh, set it up soberly. Everything perfect. Got all the all-stars from New York that I needed. And we went out there. And the first thing I said to this young man was, look, we're going to be up here doing all the music you want, so forget about that. Well, we don't want to be looking for drinks or a waiter. So I'd like to have a waiter standing right there watching me. So when I need help, all I have to do is like that. Well, 11.30 at night, I needed help, all right. 
I was out in the automobile, and one of the other fellows was finishing up on my instrument. And on the train, going back to New York, because we travel, travel by train, I had one of these cases that you carried records in. There was a fifth and a pint. And my fifth and pint was going up and down the train. I was out of it. This was part of my success story. When I, my last drunk, I had a sponsor. We hear about sponsors in this room. I had sponsors long before I ever heard about AA. A sponsor was a guy that came into the club, sat there, ordered me two drinks of what I liked, a minimum of conversation, a maximum of drinks. Sponsors. I managed to really do away with my salary each week in spite of that, which is, continues to be a mystery to me how I did that. But I did it. This evening I was working at Ryan's on 52nd Street. He comes in with a beautiful gal. He takes one look at me and he says, you look lousy. I says, you look good. Where you been? I haven't seen you. He says, AA. I says, what's that? He says, here's my card. Call me up when you feel worse. A week later, I called him up. <laughs> you know something? I lived uh, out in Hempstead, Long Island. He never came to my house one time. He said, at 5 o'clock at 40th and Broadway, 3 million people erupt from the subways. But he was there. And he took me to a bar and bought me a drink. I had a beer. Half of it I left. It may be standing there for all I know. Outside of one drink, that's the last drink I had, on May 24th, 1948. I figured it was time to wake you up. <laughs> I said to myself before I came up here, crowds shouldn't intimidate you. You've been at Carnegie, you've been in all kinds of halls. Some dismal, some better. He met me. He was there. And he walked me. Here was a rotund man, a lawyer by trade, who never walked in his life. He walked me 48 city blocks. He said, let me see. You still got a job? Your wife doesn't love you. He said, and he got me into his house, took me to the bathroom in front of the mirror. He says, breathe. And I went, he says, fine, there's breath in the body. We'll start from there. He knew all about deflation and depth. He took me on a train one time. There was nine trains, subway trains. He walked me through all the trains. He says, Do you notice, did you notice that anybody you knew? I says, no. He says, if you was to drop dead, not a soul knew you. I mean, you talk about puncture and the ego, and he was right. <laughs> because my balloon was still not punctured, but still had air. My wife had told me sometime in January, we had lost a child, beautiful child, about 19 months. And she told me sometime in January, she hit me with a great surprise. She says, I don't love you. <laughs> I couldn't believe that. <laughs> How could anybody not love me? <laughs> I, I came in AA, I had hair. 
But that wasn't the punchline. See, I thought there's something wrong with this woman. So I flew her sister in from Chicago to see what was wrong. <laughs> and her sister just looked at me and nodded her head and on this pair like. Now there was a young gal that was 12 or 13 years younger than my wife. And she was a fan. So I said, why don't you come stay in our house and see what's going on? My wife ran her and me out. She says, take her and go. And she says, and please, take anything else in the house you want. And may I suggest you go to China? You see, I was a success. You know, musicians don't drink like ordinary people. We've got a different style. And I'd like to tell you a story about our style. Here's this fellow. I have to use a word that may be a little disagreeable. I hope not. Here's this fellow who's been drinking the night before. He gets up with a hangover and a constant thought about a beautiful blonde in a golden toilet seat. Some of you have heard it. I've been down here before. So he starts retracing his steps. He knew he didn't, he didn't have a car. He couldn't remember having taken a cab. He started knocking on doors and retracing his steps and finally found the right house. And this blonde comes out. She says, Joe, where did you go? He says, was I here? She says, was you ever here? And she called back and says, Frank, there's the guy shitting your tuba. We were a very classy lot, as you see. <laughs> My sponsor spent some time with me, some real good time, and taught me things I never know. I thought I should make amends when I got so what better amends than to paint the house. I completely forgot that I can't stand heights. So when I got up about, it just doesn't feel good. So I went all the way into New York City possibly 30, 40 miles, see my sponsor and tell him about this. And he made a very, he made a very profound step to be a steeplejack to make this program. <laughs> I didn't know that. And he also said to me, I'll walk with you, but I won't carry you. And that was very strange. I was looking for a free ride. So, three months I spent with him, very close, going to meetings. The nature of my job, I, I never got to uh, hear the Lord's Prayer. Because by the time the second speaker, in New York, we have three speakers at, at meetings. In, uh, in the Chicago area, if there's a new man, at any meeting immediately becomes a, a first step meeting. In New York, you have rooms where they have daily meetings somewhere that are first step meetings. In fact, we, my wife and I, my current wife, Jan, she and I went to um, a meeting in New York City and we heard a fellow talk and he really impressed me. It was a first step meeting. And he said, you know, I never knew I was an alcoholic. Now, my father was an alcoholic, 
Because when he drank, he brought a fifth or a, or a quart home, and he drank till he passed out. That wasn't my problem. My problem was I couldn't get home. <laughs> he says, after 12 nut houses, one of the nuts in one of these nut houses said to him, maybe if you stop drinking, you'll get home. <laughs> Isn't that a tremendous thing? <laughs> Where we learn these things? Early in my program, I've been very blessed. I was born to the purple, um, both in my business and uh, in AA. Um, one of the first people I met in AA was a priest. I'd never met a priest in all my life. I'd never gone near any church since I was about knee high. I knew there was no place there for me. And my father was a free thinker, and he says, you can decide for yourself when you grow up. And I met this priest, now he's dead, I can mention the name that he went under, Father Hewitt, and he was on the program. And he'd come into this up holstered sewer where I was gainfully employed. It's, it's quite a big club in New York City. And he turned his collar around, and he'd sit there and wait till I got through work. What I didn't know was that he was raised as a child around the racetrack, an automobile racetrack. So he liked to drive on the opposite side of the street. Now, you just can't imagine a guy sober about three or four minutes riding with a priest who drives on the wrong side of the street <laughs> and fast. <laughs> but he took me places. He took me to a Catholic, a new Catholic house, $3 million building. I said, what are we doing down here? I thought, well, maybe it's was a 12-step call. It is a sort of 12-step call. I'd like you to play for these nuns. They've never heard anything like this. Gosh, I didn't either. I didn't believe this man. But he did something else for me. Through some people that I knew there, there weren't too many drunks and there weren't hardly any musicians. And certainly not in the kind of music I was involved in, which is traditional. He took me to Bill Wilson's house, and I got to meet Bill. Now, that was something, you know. But I didn't appreciate it at the time. I mean, after all, he's another drunk just like me. <laughs> and uh, I never will forget. He said, uh, there's a lot of people don't know that he loved music, and he was one of these drunks that hung around bars at the piano and listened to the music. And he said... Uh, how about you playing some for me? I said, sure. The people wouldn't get quiet. He says, don't mind these tin-eared people. They don't know what's going on. And that made a tremendous impression on me. I want to say this, too. To give you an idea of how much sobriety I had when I left New York to go to Chicago. Um, I went to see Bill again. By that time, I changed sponsors. And then my second sponsor... Was, had been sponsored by Bill. And he's dead too, so I don't mind mentioning his name. His name was Hank Greeny, and he's the man who's responsible for translating or having the big book translated at that time in 46 languages. Hank was my second sponsor. And he turned me on to the literature that helped bring me to wherever I am right now. And here I am talking to Bill, and I know I got an engagement 
real fine engagement in Chicago and bring in an all-star group. Uh, I don't know if anybody heard of the name of Louis Armstrong. We're going to follow him around. I went up to Bill and said, Bill, now that I know you, who do you know in Chicago? I, I don't care about starting from the bottom again. He looked at me out of his eye like that. You know, there's another strange one. <laughs> and um, told me the name of the, second, the first guy that ever got sober in Chicago. A chap by the name of Earl Treat. And I put a note in my mind, I was going to see Earl Treat. Well, I got to Chicago and ran into a lot of difficulty trying to handle three all-star drunks in the band. It was a pretty dismal experience. And um, so I had my hands full. I went to one meeting immediately, and it was an open meeting. It was a large crowd. And there were some people sitting there reading newspapers. The literature was on sale in the back. And when they have a collection, they had a woman come up at the piano and play Pennies from Heaven. I says, if that's Chicago AA, you can stick it. And I walked out. Now I'm talking about spiritual experiences. I didn't go to any meetings. The only AA I knew was an actor. And he didn't get home till 4 o'clock in the morning. That night, a drinking priest came into our club and bought us all a drink. I was 12-stepping one of the greats in our business, and he was shot, completely shot. He was drinking Benedictine and brandy in eggnogs. So there was at least four in a, in a good-sized eggnog. And I got off the stand, I'm soaking wet, and I'd ordered an eggnog, and they made both the same way. And uh, I just took a gulp, I might have got an uh, ounce. And my first reaction was, that son of a bitch, how could they do this to me? And I started off to tell them what I thought, and my second reaction hit me, geez, that tasted good. <laughs> I said, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. <laughs> I walked State Street from Lake to Van Buren, a matter of a half, half a mile, for two hours. And for weeks, I could tell you all the displays in the windows. And all I kept saying to myself is what they taught me in New York. Let's look at the record. What happened the last time you took a drink? And I didn't have to look long to know I'd, I'd blown everything. The boss I had came to my house two weeks after I was sober with a bottle. Didn't know I tried, was trying to program. He says, Art, here's a bottle. I hope it makes you feel better. But unfortunately, I'm going to have to let you go. And that told me how successful I was on that job. So... I'm in Chicago, and again, I'm very, very lucky. There's a meeting in the Loop, the Daily News building. It's attended by priests, captains of the police, newspaper people, um, people that, they weren't anonymous, but that was a good meeting where they all gathered, and I was lucky to be invited. <clears throat> I wasn't there. There was nine priests at that meeting. I wasn't there two weeks before I was telling those priests how to find God. 
But something in this program struck me. You see, I didn't come into this program to stop drinking. A lot of people here are lucky. They come in to stop drinking. Like the story of the guy who makes a bet with his friend, lock me in a cave, come back in a month and I'll still be alive. No bread, no water. They make the bet. They all come back in a month and they open the cave and here's this guy still breathing. And one of the fellows there says to the other, says, look, he's living. The fellow in the cave says, you call this living? <laughs> well, that's about how it was when I came in. I mean, you could have sold me any bill of goods uh, if, it, if it just would get me out of where I was inside of myself. So I was ready to look for something deeper than go to meetings and don't drink. And I noticed what Bill read. God could and would have sought. So there's got to be something to this. Because anybody, any power, now don't forget... I'm not one that didn't know about powers. Going ready, getting ready to go to work, my shoelace breaks. My shoelace is against me. The way the bartender looks at me when I walk in is against me. When the telephone rings and jangles, that's against me. I know all about powers, higher power. I didn't have no trouble with that. Besides, I'd study with the Rosicrucians sometime when I was young and not drinking that much but smoking a lot. And one of their styles is that at the end of the day, you turn the day back and go over every event of the day and see how you did. That wasn't new to me. Anybody that could help me, please help me. I came in with the right atmosphere, with the right climate. I was blessed. I was at the bottom. I couldn't go no further. And I got lucky. Because they taught me the program. They explained it to me. I like to tell this story about Mr. Brown, who was a black gentleman, who'd heard about this new world of coming, came into the bank with his check, and they told him to sign it on the back, and he says, I'm through with this back sheet. I'm not signing in the back. I'm not sitting in the back. <laughs> Forget it. So... They send him to the supervisor, who in turn sends him to the vice president, who's a great big guy also. And he reaches over, and here's the story, picks this man's arms up, and bangs him as hard as he can. And he says, now you go out there, and don't give me no more trouble. Sign that check and get your money. He goes back to the first booth, signs the check, and the girl says, what happened? He says, well, once they explained it to me. <laughs> They, you know, life had a way of explaining things to me very carefully and painfully. So I was ready to look. And we had some great spiritual AAs. Not many, but a few in, a, in the Chicago area. One of them was Clem, who ran the Chicago Daily News. He was the edit, night editor, 11 years, Skid Row. And his uh, big thing was 12-7 priests. And I spent time with him. Wherever I could, I'd go looking. I finally decided to find Earl Treat. And I called a friend of mine and said, Can you get Earl Treat to your house for a meeting? Earl lived in Evanston. I lived in Park Forest. D difference of 50 miles. I'm there with a friend. I picked up some body to come along. And we're going to the meeting. 
and we can't find a place to park. There's car after car after car, no place to park. And we finally get up in the apartment, and there's four people up there. The kid and I, Earl Treat, and the host. Those cars were for the saloons. Earl had come all the way because he heard somebody wanted to be in the room with him. These are the things that impressed me about this program. I'd like to get to the meat of the program. Like I say, I mean, people I employ, they did still do they want. I've been arrested because the only in the animals that you could eat for a hangover. They never had them in my time. Now I'm in Detroit on an engagement. I've just paid my group. There's five of them beside me. First time I had a break it. But one of the guys in the group has sent his money home and he needs. And he's in me. And finally it gets to me. And I begin to feel bad. So I said, the hell with it. And I break the $100 bill and give him his advance. The whole thing, I picked a lousy restaurant to go in and eat. A one-arm joint. It was, I wouldn't eat there in a million years. But I went in there because it looked just the way I felt. <laughs> and I'm eating away and down to some... You know? What's that show where the woman kept saying, God will get you for this? <laughs> no, you don't lie up here. But that was kind of an extraordinary story. Coming home from work, I was in a downtown hotel, trying to get some sleep, and there's four gentlemen living it up in the next room. And they're loud. And I thought about, I think I'll call the manager. i got to get some sleep. Just I look at the phone, there's the Gideon's Bible. for Psalms, the 91st, and I start reading, He, he who dwells in the city, place in the most high, and so forth. I read it, and read it, and read it. Suddenly I notice it's quiet in the next room. I don't know how it happened. Really, I don't. Involvement. We got a fellow in our neighborhood called Kissin' Freddy. Now, there's all kinds of stories about him, but there's one thing you can't say about Kissin' Freddy, is that he doesn't work this program. He and I went calling on a guy. So the guy's in the bathroom, we're talking to the wife. The wife's telling us, my husband's a genius. My husband's a genius. He can fix anything. Twenty minutes later, I'm the impatient kind. I still am. I went into the bathroom to get the genius, and let's go to the hospital. The genius is standing up doing his business, but he forgot to open his pants. <laughs> and I made another observation. That kind of a genius I don't have to be. <laughs> fellow that I work with... And by the way, the reason I'm here is because some 27 years ago, I sponsored two of us. John is out there, too. One of your, I was going to say inmates, but, <laughs> but that's not quite true. One of the gentlemen that's uh, kind of gotten kind of big on the program out here. And uh, I think he's trying to prove that he knows somebody I, don't, I really don't know what he's trying to prove. <laughs> he had me to wear this coat and tie. Can you believe this? Anyway, he played the horn in one of my groups, but he also ran a saloon. The horn didn't make enough money for him. And he says, uh, how about you and I go on a meeting tomorrow? I said, sure. 
he's at my house 8 o'clock in the morning, and I'm wondering, what kind of meeting is that? He starts driving from Park Forest to Detroit. The meeting's in Detroit, 278 miles or so away. His sponsor is there. That's why we went there. I kind of don't dig this at all. So we go to the meeting. And the house, he tells me, sponsor is dying from cancer. Now I understand. So by this time, you know, I've been accused of flying around the room with this spiritual stuff. I just cleaned that word up. And uh, <laughs> making people uncomfortable at times. But I thought I ought to sit with this guy. So I asked my friend Whitey, I said, do you mind if we sit together? Someone in the room sat with him. And we were quiet. I didn't pray audibly or just put my arms on him or something. And we said goodnight and drove back to Chicago. And three days later, later I get a letter from him. He says, thank you. That's the first night I went to sleep without taking any medicine. That always blows me. You see, when I came into this program, I knew about a lot of things. I knew about love. Let me tell you about love. There's a story about two hunters. They're out there trying to shoot any big game they can. Now they're down to rabbits. And they're bending down and one of them gets bit in the ass. He says, I'm dying. A snake bit me. And the friend says, how do you know you're dying? I'll go get a doctor. But the doctor can't leave his practice, so he gives him a knife. He says, have your friend drop his pants, cut him this way, and suck that venom out. He gets back, and the friend says, what did the doctor say? You're dying. I talk, uh, another thing is my driving. There's a few things I talk about. My driving. I had a car that when I came into AA, I finally sold it for five dollars. <laughs> it had the kind of brakes that you curb. <laughs> That's how you stop. You hit the curb. <laughs> and in this car, I drive back from 52nd Street to Hempstead, Long Island. And this one time, there's many times, but this one time in particular, lights are flashing and horns and, ah, it must be New Year's. I don't know that the lights are the cops behind me <laughs> and the horns are there making noise. And now there's a house in front of the road. And I'm almost in the doorway before I can stop. Four o'clock in the morning is a good time to move a house across the road. <laughs> And that's one of the times a cop looked at me and said, you look strange behind the wheel. And I was to hear that quite a few times. Mama dancing. My wife loved the square dance. I wasn't. I could care less. But one time, just to make peace, I says, okay, we'll square dance. So we went to a square dance. But in order to do my steps well, I had to keep going out to the car because there's something wrong with it. <laughs> And the more trips I made, the better I danced. <laughs> only it seemed I was the only one that thought so. <laughs> and later I heard about it. And the other part of my dancing, a friend that gave us clothes, like I said, I had sponsors. I had people that were good to me. 
He gave us a lot of clothes. He was in the clothing business. He got married. And he only invited two people to come to his house. His, my wife and myself. And the, I had some drinks and things got nice and gay. And I thought, let's dance. My wife says, I don't want to dance. So I asked his wife to dance. She says, okay. And I started dancing with her. And pretty soon I'm dancing around the door into the next room towards the bathroom. And these two people, my wife and my friend, are looking at me. Again, out of the side of their eye. Now, that's my dancing. Now, in case some of you would like to relive the past, I'd like to tell you this story that's based on Thomas Wolfe's book, You Can't Go Home Again. This couple has been married 25 years. Now, they want to relive their honeymoon. So they call the hotel in Niagara Falls... Same room, same clerk. They got their same bottle of champagne. And they get up to the room, and his wife coyly time to change my stockings. And he says, you'll have time to knit a pair. <laughs> so as far as I'm concerned, you pick up this program where you're at. Reality is the name of the game. I lived with a fighter who was almost a... And his nose was a little flat, and his ears were pushed in. And he'd look in the mirror, and he'd go like that, you see? And I never could see anything good-looking about him <laughs> until I started combing my hair this way so that it would cover and look at it this way and that way. You know, when I stopped going to a barber shop, when the barber says, in your case, I get paid for finding them. <laughs> you know, A is a great place. There's a lot of humor here. There's a lot, I don't know too much about love, but what I know is that it's not an, an adjective and it's not a noun, it's a verb. It's a do-something word. And I also learned that you've got to get your hands dirty in AA. Now, I started some time back by saying that God couldn't would have sought. And that is what I bought. I bought, previous to that, three things. One, what is an alcoholic? And you better know that for sure. It took me five and a half months to find out what an alcoholic was. That it didn't have to be a skid row bum. That you could feel as lousy inside as he looks on the outside. It took me some time. The story of the New York gentleman with the spats and the cane and the hat and all that. Knocking at the bar door, seven o'clock in the morning. And they finally let him in. And he has a few drinks and the radio's going on. Why suffer the rigors of New York weather in the wintertime when in 20 minutes you can be in Hackensack and two hours in Florida? Fine. Now he's got the traveling urge, so he says to the bartender, I think I'll go down the street and get a sandwich. Do you want some? He says, yeah, bring me a corned beef on rye and a cup of... He goes down and gets the cup of coffee, the sandwich, and on the way back there's another bar. He didn't notice it. Goes in there, a couple of drinks... Same announcement, sandwich and coffee in hand, he's on the bus to Hackensack, and two hours later, he's in Florida, where two New York cops are, looking at him and says, what the hell are you doing here? He says, well, I'm listening to the, he says, forget it, man, we'll book you right back on. Six o'clock at night, he's back at the original bar, and the bartender says, where the hell you been? He says, Florida. I could understand that kind of a drunk. I could understand that kind of alcoholism. The next thing is the fourth step for me. I'm not going through the steps. 
Be peaceful. <laughs> I'm just not able to do it. But the fourth step, know yourself and the truth shall set you free. And boy, that is a job to get you know, get to know yourself. Inside out to get to know yourself. That's a lifetime job. Because you color yourself. You don't really look at yourself. It's like my fighter looking in the mirror. And the third thing, of course, is to develop a closer conscious contact with God. Because who else? My first sponsor got drunk. I found out later that that beautiful woman that he was coming around with, he had a child with that woman. And he had a wife with two or three other children. And he kept telling me, it was all right in Solomon's time. Why isn't it all right now? And I kept saying to him, you can't keep the status quo in AA. He says, what are you trying to do, run me out? Twenty-eight months later, he ran himself out. He got drunk. And I never heard, I never saw an AA work harder than he did to stay sober. Chasing drugs. It didn't work. Not for him. Maybe somebody out here is a genius. I'm not. And he was. The only thing that could help me would be a power greater than myself. And there was nothing more important for me to do but to develop a conscious contact. Nothing more important. I looked at all the exits, tried all the doors. There was nothing more important. So I started. I traveled 1,100 miles to Denver to hear a man that I thought was very spiritualized. And I fell asleep while he was talking. And he says, don't wake him. He probably needs to sleep more than he needs me. I made my mistakes. I traveled 400 miles to sit in the room with a man, hoping something will rub off. Or at least I'd be in his presence, because I know he's more spiritual than I Because that's where the answer is for me. God could and would have sought. Now you tell me something better to do with your life than sorting. Thank you. <laughs>